Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're going to be talking today about a brand new film that's going to air on March 29th at 8 o'clock, 7 central on PBS. It's called Yosemite. It's through the Nature Series with PBS, and it is gorgeous. It is like a seven-layer chocolate fudge cake for your eyeballs. It shows the impact that climate change is having on Yosemite, but it's really much more than that. And we're going to be talking with some of the scientists who worked on the film. We're going to be talking with the writer and producer of the film, and um, you're going to want to tune in, uh, no doubt. Our first guest is Roger Putnam, and he is a professor of geology at several uh, Central Valley, California schools, most notably the brand new University of California, Merced. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Roger. It's great to have you on. Fantastic to be on. Well, you know, this film helps us understand the vital role that water has played in the most unique geology. You know, I've traveled the world, but I've never seen anything like Yosemite. And many of our listeners have never seen Yosemite. But I'm imagining that while they're listening to us on voiceamerica.com, they might be opening a new tab in their web browser and Googling images of Yosemite as we speak. So talk to us about some of the geological wonders of Yosemite and how water helped to shape this incredible place. Well, I really, really hope that people are (laughs) opening their web browsers and taking a look at the place if they haven't looked at it already, because it truly is a spectacular place. It's one of the first, uh, arguably the first national park um, in America, and it also, um, it's one of the few places that the uh, UN has designated the most beautiful on earth, and um, yeah, by giving it the designation of a UNESCO World Heritage Site, Um, so it's truly truly fantastic. And one of the things that makes it so beautiful are its rock formations, which um, were sculpted by water and wind and, um, and ice um, over a long, long period of time. So um, it's not knowing your geology is a very, um, a very great way to be able to interpret the landscape that you enter when you do enter that and enter Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And it's really one of those places, and I, I can't emphasize this enough. I'm fortunate to live three hours away, so I've been many times. My children, we used to take them every year during the spring to see the waterfalls. When you enter the valley, the Yosemite Valley, it's, I mean, it literally takes your breath away, and it's just gorgeous. I, I want to welcome Joseph Stewart, who is a Ph.D. student at UC Santa Cruz, and P.S. Joseph, my son, attends UC Santa Cruz and is studying biology too so if you run across him uh you know we'll talk about that offline but he studied um, conservation biology and climate change and joseph before we talk about how climate change will impact yosemite talk to us about yosemite's ecosystem it's incredibly diverse yes it is jill thanks for having me on the show you bet. Um, so Yosemite spans an elevational uh, gradient from foothill habitat around 2,000 feet to jagged high peaks at over 13,000 feet elevation. And, of course, that elevational gradient corresponds to changes in the environment and the climate. So low elevations have a Mediterranean climate with negligible snowpack, and as you go up in elevation, the climate becomes colder and wetter. And it's this elevational gradient, in part, that makes mountain ecosystems so ecologically diverse. You can go relatively short distances upslope 
scientists span the equivalent distance in terms of climate as traveling thousands of miles north into Canada. Weather typically, typically comes from the west, so the gradually sloped west side of the Sierra benefits from uh, orographic precipitation, while the steep eastern slope of the Sierra um, is in a bit of a rain shadow as it transitions into the Great Basin uh, and the high desert to the east. They say mountain uh, systems make their own weather, so the higher elevations have both uh, unpredictable summer storms and winter snow accumulation. So if you, as you travel from west to east through Yosemite, you start in relatively dry foothill habitat with negligible snowpack. Uh, this area is often dominated by chaparral scrub and oak woodland, and cool animals in that zone include black bear, ringtail cats, coyotes, and bobcats. And as you rise in elevation above 3,000 feet, winter snowpack starts to play an important role in the ecosystem, and dominant vege vegetation starts to become species like ponderosa pine and sugar pine. And this is where you also find the world's largest living organism, 3,000-year-old giant sequoia trees, which the mm -hmm. film discusses in detail. As you go further up, you reach upper montane, subalpine, and then alpine zones, where weather conditions are too cold for trees to grow but a variety of specially adapted species still thrive. And on the east side, you have your own unique community assemblages with forests of Jeffrey and pinion pine, and those transition to a sea of uh, sagebrush in the Great Basin to the east. The east side of the Sierra also has spectacular scenery with steep, jagged peaks rising abruptly out of the Great Basin and great fall colors from aspen and other species as those change in the fall. That's beautiful. It's amazing how much life you can see. I mean, you and you could spend your whole life, you know, just in Yosemite, uh, you know, trying to observe all of this. But how much variety of life and living things there are just in this one national park. And Roger, you know, Yosemite is like the ultimate supermodel of nature photography and videography. And the film is just so full of breathtaking images. And the one that honestly took my breath away the most because it scared me to death was watching you climb El Capitan. <laughs> and I, I would love for you to talk to us about El Capitan and why it's one of the most unique geologic features on the planet. Well, um, especially uh, as a climber, it's uh, very easy to appreciate El Capitan just simply by how steep and tall it is, um, how close it is to the road, how, um, how beautifully uh, sculpted its crack systems are. They're, it's made of these really beautiful, long, clean crack features, which are just really, really pleasant for rock climbers to climb. Um, and uh, as a geologist, oh my goodness, El Cap is uh, one of, it's been heralded throughout the geologic literature as one of the best, most beautiful exposures of the interior of the continental crust. Uh, basically, um, you can say in general, the continental crust below a thin veneer of sedimentary and metamorphic rocks is mostly granitic. And so uh, when you look at the exposures in Yosemite Valley on El Cap and on Half Dome and uh, other walls of Yosemite Valley, you're, being, you're able to look at a true cross-section of what the interior of the continents with, uh, the interior of the continents are, um, which is uh, very important because most humans in human history have lived on a continent. So, uh, mm -hmm. so it's it, 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 as a geologist, it gives us the ability to test hypotheses about how the 
continental crust even came into being, why we even have these um, buoyant masses of less dense material that float on top of the uh, rest of the earth, essentially float on top of the rest of the earth. So um, geologically, it's fascinating from that perspective. It's also really fascinating in terms of just wondering how we can even get a cliff that is, you know, a kilometer tall, three 3,000 feet tall, how you can even, how something like that can even be formed, and then how something like that does not immediately collapse. So uh, uh-huh. it also is a fantastic place to be able to test hypotheses regarding weathering and erosion and how you can even get uh, granitic landscapes uh, that look like that. Uh, so it's, uh, LCAP is a, a dream for both climbers and for uh, geologists, and I think that the film does a really good job of explaining that kind of intersection of interests. Well, and it's so cool. That segment of the film is pretty early on, and, you know, I don't, I don't even know how they got, you know, cameras up there with you. I'm scared to know, like, I can't even imagine going up that high. But watching you and your fellow climber sleeping in this little fabric piece that's hanging off the edge of this sheer cliff is ridiculous. It's so cool. And Roger, you know, you teach geology to young adults. And as it turns out, a lot of our listeners for Go Green Radio are college students. When they take a geology class, it probably surprises them to learn that rocks and the Earth's formation and and geology in and of itself are somehow connected to climate change. And that is part of what the film, you know, tries to bridge the gap. How do you bridge those two topics for your students? Well, yeah, when you take a geology class, it's a lot more than just looking at different rocks and learning about plate tectonics. Like the modern, modern geology classes like to frame themselves rather as earth science, where we give you the tools to interpret the earth. And the earth is an awful lot more than just the rock below our feet. It's the, so a lot more than the rock below our feet, which we call the geosphere. It's also the lithosphere. Uh, it's also the atmosphere, the hydrosphere. Um, the exosphere, meaning the things which are outside of the Earth, and like such as the sun, and how those interact with Earth's system. So um, it's very that when we when you take a geology class, you gain the tools, the quantitative tools and analytical tools, um, to be able to interpret these all of these things. So besides just learning about rocks, we also learn about how those rocks are eroded away um, by rivers and glaciers and so on. And then we learn about the water cycle and how that interacts with the atmosphere. And then suddenly at the end of the class, we've got to, to this point where we have all of the tools where we can be able to discuss climate change and be able to actually explain it from an earth systems perspective, which is the best way of discussing such things. Could you give us a snippet? You know, we've got a couple of minutes before we have to take a commercial break. Can you give us a snippet of how you do that at the end of your classes, how you explain climate change from from a geological, you know, with all those tools that you've given them? How do you explain it to them using those systems and those models? Well, for a quick example, when we talk about Yosemite, uh, one thing that we can talk about is the, uh, the glaciers in Yosemite, which... Uh, which are uh, these, uh, there used to be two glaciers in Yosemite, the Lyle Glacier and the McClure Glacier. And to be defined as a glacier, students very quickly learn that there has to be more snow accumulation during the winter than melt off during the spring. So uh, that causes uh, their, the, the actual thing, the actual glacier, to advance 
um, at a uh, such as a, a flowing river. And so, uh, how, so there, it requires this balance of deposition of solid precipitation in the form of snow. And mm-hmm. uh, recently, uh, Yosemite National Park's geologist, by using very, very simple methods, actually methods which were pioneered by John Muir, um, to he very recently was able to notice that the Lyle Glacier, which used to be the largest glacier in, the, in, in Yosemite, um, was no longer advancing. And so this hypothetically is related to the general warming that we're seeing throughout the Sierra, um, which uh, the other guests I'm sure will be able to discuss um, in terms of its effects on the biology. But So that's one way that we uh, bring it very close to home, especially because a lot of the communities I teach in, uh, they derive their water from the 12 River watershed, and so what's at the top of that watershed? The Lyle Glacier. So it's uh, it's very important in terms of understanding where our water comes from. Uh, awesome. Additionally, I'm sorry. Yeah, go right ahead. Go right oh, ahead. Oh, uh, additionally, another another great way to kind of apply the, what they've learned and uh, in it. it Another, another great way to apply what they've learned is to understand it in terms of the hydrologic cycle. I mean, that's a very simple, uh, simple way to think about it, where if your oceans are warmer and the atmosphere is warmer, then there's likely to be greater amounts of evaporation, which will lead to greater amounts um, in a lot of places on Earth of, of storms, um, greater amounts of precipitation, which leads to greater amounts of runoff, basically an acceleration of the hydrologic cycle. So a lot of the things which we are seeing in Yosemite in terms of how uh, rivers are behaving and how the ecology is rea- reacts and lives around those rivers, a lot of those are likely to change. So uh, that's why climate change, in a sense, um, is a very interesting capstone to any earth science class because it gives uh because now we can use the tools that we've already learned about the hydrologic cycle about glaciers and so on to uh be able to actually explore uh apply that knowledge to a problem which um, the younger generations especially are going to have to deal with Absolutely. Well said, Roger, and thanks so much for joining us. I know you've got to teach a class. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk so much more about this film, Yosemite, and the impact that climate change is having on Yosemite. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking about a brand new film that's coming out on PBS March 29th at 8 o'clock, 7 central on PBS. It's one of the nature series and it's called Yosemite and it's absolutely gorgeous. It was shot in 4K. It shows the various seasons of Yosemite. It shows the wildlife. And most importantly and relevant to our listeners of Go Green Radio is how climate change is impacting this gorgeous landscape um, that we're all so lucky to be able to visit in our lifetime. And I hope that if you haven't made it to Yosemite yet in your lifetime that you will. It's um, unbelievable. Um, Our guest during this segment uh, was with us last segment, Joseph Stewart. He is a PhD student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he's studying conservation biology and climate change. And Joseph, Yosemite is similar to every place on earth. I mean, it goes through a lot of cycles, um, cycles of flood and drought and fire and so much more. How does the ecosystem in Yosemite respond to and more importantly, thrive within these cycles? Uh, Well, uh, the recent pattern that Yosemite has seen is um, some pretty severe drought. Um, I think uh, researchers estimate that the 2012 to 2014 drought was the most severe drought that California has experienced for the last, I want to say, 1,400 years. Uh, so almost a millennium and a half. Um, so at lower elevations in those ponderosa pine forests and the mixed conifer belt, there's just huge die-offs. And there's an online uh, web exclusive that looks at mapping those die-offs that have occurred as a result of drought. So there are trees are dying because of drought stress. Bark beetles and other diseases are moving in to take advantage of the trees' weaknesses. Uh, there. So, uh, you know, when, when things are pushed too far out of the zone that life has experienced for the last uh, multiple million years and that species have locally adapted to, uh, certainly ecosystems don't especially thrive. Um, 
The species are, you know, adapted to the range of conditions they've experienced for long periods of time. Uh, populations of animals will respond to year-to-year fluctuations with population booms and crashes. But the species will persist within the range of weather conditions that were part of the climates that they've adapted to. And fires, of course, have always been a natural and important part of forest ecology. Uh, many plant species, such as giant sequoias, as well as many chaparral species, are specially adapted to fire and, in fact, require fire in order to reproduce. The difference mm-hmm. today is that we're departing from the climate regime that's existed for the last two-plus million years. Uh, Carbon dioxide levels today are higher than they've been for probably about 23 million years. And temperatures in the Sierra are already about 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit higher than they were a century ago. And the weather seems to be becoming more variable as well. So, for instance, 2015 had the lowest Sierra Nevada snowpack for the last half millennium, 500 years, capping off a multi-year mega drought. Uh, that, as I mentioned, was the worst the state has seen for over a millennium. And in 2016, uh, 2017, snowpack conditions are way higher. We're at uh, 160, 170% of normal, somewhere around that. So we're getting these huge fluctuations where the extremes are changing. Um, uh, Both the average climate is changing, temperatures are going up, um, but also we're getting more intense uh, wet years and more intense dry years. And that can cause problems for species um, more than just if you look at the average change in climate. Because species tend to do well, oftentimes many species, in those mid-range conditions. But if from year to year you jump from very wet conditions and then to very dry conditions, that mm-hmm. create, can create problems for a lot of species um, and cause species populations to crash, for them to become locally extinct, and for range contractions to occur. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, unbelievable how wildly um, the the temperatures and the weather can vary in, in California. I mean, I've lived here all of my adult life, and you know, it it just seems to be coming to be becoming less stable um, in terms of predictable fire seasons and rainy seasons and the things that used to be pretty normal. You know, uh, droughts have, have hit California before, but what we've been seeing lately is just um, pretty severe. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about the wildfires because, I, I mean, Yosemite has fires, as you mentioned, even with the giant sequoias, they depend on periodic wildfires in order to reproduce and make room for new seedlings and what have you. But when you couple these extreme drought conditions, some of the forest management public policy um, and and regulations around um, forest management, and there's just so much underbrush with severe drought, um, that is a, a new kind of condition. That's not your typical cyclical wildfire. How does an intense wildfire and maybe a more, um, you know, more wildfires, you know, in, in terms of sequence, impact the animal life in Yosemite? 
Well, I'm not an expert on fire ecology, so I should give that a asterisk, but I can take a crack at uh, answering uh, the question. Um, the fires we're seeing today tend to be much bigger in spatial extent and tend to be much more severe in terms of killing all the speed, uh, trees in their path. Um, historical fire regimes tended to produce much smaller fires in terms of spatial extent that oftentimes just burned the understory trees, leaving the forest canopy intact. The sorts of fires created mosaics of differently aged forests with different species composition that served as habitat for different types of wildlife. So they were an important part of maintaining diversity within those systems. But the types of wildfires we're seeing today tend to be more catastrophic and cover more area. And this seems to be both a result of historical fire suppression. So we've been uh, keeping fires from burning. We've been overzealous and uh, fighting fires. Um, So we've got this big buildup of uh, uh, brush in the understory, as you uh, mentioned, but also as a result of changing climate conditions seem to be contributing to our increase in wildfires today. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have uh, Joe um, Ponacorva, who's the director of the film, on with us now. He's joining us, and I'm so excited to have him on. Um, Joe, welcome to Go Green Radio. This film is amazing. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, and I want to remind everybody it's going to be airing March 29th at 8, 7 Central on PBS. You know, throughout the episode of this show, we're going to be talking about various features of the film, various topics that you bring up. But I really would like to ask you to start with the purpose behind it. Um, you've accomplished so much more than just a gorgeous film about one of the most amazing places on Earth. You've really invited your audience to think very deeply about the ramifications of climate change. As you were writing and producing this film, what message were you working to convey? Well, you know... The film is really an introduction, um, it's, and we wanted to look at the Yosemite ecosystem and the Sierra Nevada um, through the lens of water. So we wanted to explore the natural history and, and, and beauty of Yosemite, but we wanted to do that by taking this perspective. And since we began uh, at really the peak of the drought, that became really core to our story. And, you know, again, it's only an hour, so we wanted we had a lot of areas to touch down on. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really just, this was the purpose of the film was really to kind of launch this conversation, the kind of mm-hmm. conversations we're having right now. Absolutely. And I mean, the film is just so beautiful. Um, you've got giant sequoias, the tallest waterfalls in the world and so much more. Talk to us just a little bit about how snow and rain and flowing water have created this place and made it what it is today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, largely snowmelt drives uh, the ecosystem of the Sierra. It really drives all life. It feeds these meadows that turn from brown to this lush green as the water, as the snow melts. And, um, you know, feeds the largest living trees, which can use up to 800 gallons of water in a single day. And ultimately, you know, all of this water ends up in the Central Valley, feeding these vast wetlands. Well, there used to be vast wetlands. Now those have been reduced significantly. But, I mean, it's so, such a critical part of the ecosystem because, you know, California is this extreme Mediterranean environment. So this is the main 
source of water that's feeding that system during that long, dry summer. Well, and I want to talk about that when we come back from commercial break, because while this film, you know, is is beautiful and it shows natural landscapes, it also makes the point that there's a real human connection here. And so much of California's water that's feeding the needs of, well, 38 million residents. But when you talk about feeding the Central Valley, we're creating the produce that goes out to the rest of the world. Um, there's a there's an intense need for Yosemite to be healthy in order to feed water to not just the state, but to create the agriculture that the world is depending on. So when we come back from commercial break, we're going to touch on that. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And in case you're just joining us, let me catch you up. We're talking about a brand new film called Yosemite, and it's going to be airing March 29th. That's a Wednesday at 8, 7 central on PBS. We have the filmmaker, the writer, producer, and director of the show, um, Joe Ponacorva. Pornikova, I'm sorry, um, and Joseph Stewart, who's a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz, who also served as a scientific advisor to the film. You know, Joe, we talked a little bit before the break about the importance of the water that's coming out of 
the Sierra Nevada, Yosemite being part of that, um, to the rest of the state of California. And because we grow about 70% of the produce that's enjoyed here in the United States in the Central Valley of California, um, that water that's flowing down also feeds the world. And so this is about more than just a gorgeous landscape. It's about like pretty much the primary water storage device that California has, and that's the snow in the Sierra Nevada. And your film shows a snow survey. Talk to us about the way this research is conducted and why it's so important to life downstream from the Sierra Nevada. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Snow surveys have been conducted in the Sierra since the late 1920s. And um, so it's probably one of the longest continuous snow surveys in America. Um, And basically, you know, what they're doing is pretty simple. They drive a tube into the ground and they weigh it. And when they're weighing that, they're actually weighing the amount of water content in the snowpack. Um, And the purpose of this, this is really giving managers an idea about how much water is going to be available for agriculture and drinking water. And the most important snow survey is at April 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's critical because that's really going to be determine how much water you're going to have during the summer months. Uh, so it's really important for water managers to figure out what they've got coming. Well, and that's the thing. I think a lot of people, even people in California, don't realize how water works in California. I mean, we don't have a lot of storage. You know, we don't have um, a huge amount of reservoirs. We count on the snow melting in the Sierra Nevada throughout the spring and summer and flowing down into the storage that we do have. And so, you know, if we don't get a snowpack, and it's not just, as you mentioned, it's not just the depth of the snow, it's the weight. It's how much water content is actually in the snow. And you know, it, in the last few years when we've had this mega drought, we haven't had that snowpack. And so even if we got a lot of rain late in the spring, because we don't have adequate storage capacity in the state, that didn't do us any good because it flowed out to sea. Um, and so we really rely on that snowpack intensely in the state. You know, Joseph, you know, you're on the biology side of the house. And when we think about the many ways that climate change is impacting animals, a lot of people think of polar bears. They've become the poster mammal for that. Um, some people think of marine life that's in peril because of the acidification of the ocean and you know the extinction that's going on in the sea. But there's a member of the rabbit family, the American pika, that's found in Yosemite. And the impact of climate change on those little guys brings the issue closer to us, um, that this isn't just a faraway impact on our ecosystem. Talk to us about the American pika and how the effects of climate change are impacting them. Well, pikas are near and dear to my heart. They're a... Mm -hmm. uh, cute little denizen of high elevation uh, talus slopes in the Sierra Nevada. Talus is broken rock debris fields. So instead of burrowing like other species into the soil, they form their homes in the spaces between these rocks and these uh, rock slides on mountain slopes. And they're very well adapted to cold temperatures. They've got fur on the bottom of their feet and the inside of their ears. Uh, so they're very good at surviving the cold winters under the snow. But these same adaptations make them especially vulnerable to high summer temperatures. And what we're finding in California, across the Great Basin, and elsewhere in the species range is the species is restricted by high summer temperatures from going back and revisiting historical sites 
across California and doing surveys of sites uh, within Yosemite, we find that pikas are disappearing from low elevation sites. And the best determinants of where they're disappearing are high summer temperature and the abundance of habitat of the sites. So they're responding exactly as we would expect to climate change. And it's not just now uh, that they're responding in the, the current area. We know that over the last tens of thousands of years, over glacial, interglacial cycles, the species distribution has shifted up and down slope in response to ice ages and then the times in between, the interglacial. So in the past, the species has responded by shifting upslope to warmer temperatures, and that's exactly what we're seeing today over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and Joe, I want to go to you. Our listeners, I, they're very familiar with the impact that the drought has had on California because we've covered it a lot of times on Go Green Radio. But what about rising temperatures? It's not just the lack of water. It's, um, you know, the evaporation piece to all of this. Climate change is expected to increase periods of drought and simultaneously raising surface temperatures. Help us understand how the combined effect of these two phenomenon are working in Yosemite. Yeah, so I'm first, and I'll, I'll say I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an ecologist, but um, I've spoken with a lot of ecologists, so I can tell you a little bit about, you know, what we've learned in the making of the film. And one of the things that was of grave concern uh, during the summer of 2015 was the impact that the temperatures that these high temperatures were having on the forest of the Sierra Nevada. And as we know, the result of that was pretty severe. There was over 100 million trees that have died across California and a lot of those in the Sierras. And um, so it's when the temperatures, and that's what made this most recent drought so devastating. It was these record-breaking temperatures. And what happens is the evaporative surface um, you know, the, the, the amount of uh, evaporation that's happening in the trees becomes so severe that they can lead, can lead to hydraulic failure, where they just cannot absorb enough water into the canopy. And so, you know, that's one of the uh, biggest problems. And when a, a tree is stressed, of course, they're also susceptible to bark beetle inf- infestation. So, um, you know, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the challenges I think the forests of the Sierras will face, um, you know, how will this ecosystem respond? Those 100 million trees, they're not coming back. Um, so the composition of the forest... And they become fodder for forest fires as well. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, how do you cut down 100 million trees to make sure they don't become kenneling, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be the biggest challenge, challenge um, you know, as, as we get into the summer. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this is what forest management is really looking at. You know, how do we, how do we address this issue? Um, so in the short term, it poses a lot of management challenges, I think, um, you know, from how we conduct controlled burns and how we conduct salvage logging, all of those things. And in the long term, I think it begs the question of what these forests will look like. Um, you know, some of those more drought-resistant species may start to dominate the forest, and some of those sugar pines, these other species may may go away. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it remains to be seen what that will look like, but that definitely seems to be uh, the way things are shifting. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that a lot of people were so surprised about, I mean, 
You know, because Yosemite is a protected land, only the park rangers live there. There are few vacation homes and things like that. But really, it's not, you know, a danger to human in, you know, inhabitants when there's a wildfire in Yosemite. But there are power lines that run through the area. And, you know, when there were some significant wildfires in that part of California, people were like, oh my gosh, my power went out. And there was a lot of, you know, relaying that had to happen, you know, within the electrical grid to get power um, to certain places that were used to getting electricity through these power lines that ran through areas where there was a wildfire. And so there's always a human impact. We're all connected. That's the, you know, lesson in ecology. But for anybody who's listening, who's like, oh, well, that's too bad for Yosemite that there's a wildfire or that there's all these dead trees. It does impact the infrastructure of human life as well. And Joseph, you know, in one of your articles, you write that as much as 16% of all animal species on Earth are vulnerable to extinction during climate change and, and due to climate change. And I know that all of our listeners in Go Green Radio have encountered somebody in their life who says, well, you know, the planet has been through this before, and this is just the natural cycle of the Earth. I'd like for you to talk to us about the last mass extinction event on Earth and help us envision, you know, humans weren't dealing with it then. It wasn't necessarily a great environment where humans would have thrived help us envision what human life might look like without the biodiversity that we currently enjoy well it's not my research uh, that came up with that 16% or 1 in 6 species on earth being vulnerable to climate mediated extinction uh, this century it's research by Mark Urban he aggregates hundreds of studies Uh, from many different scientific researchers, all looking at vulnerability to climate change. And there's huge uncertainty there. Um, You know, it's hard to predict the future in any system. And the range of estimates of, you know, vulnerability to climate change range from a very small proportion of species vulnerable to climate-mediated extinction to more than 50% of species being vulnerable to climate-mediated extinction. What's clear, though, is that as the amount that we change the climate increases, that rate of species extinction and vulnerability to climate change accelerates. So one degree, you know, might cause extinction of 5% of species, but two degrees will cause extinction of another 7% of uh, species, something along those lines. Um, But if we look back in time to past mass extinction events, The last mass extinction event 65 million years ago seems to be pretty definitively connected to an asteroid impact in the Yucatan um, causing the extinction of the dinosaurs. But there's increasing evidence uh, that many of the other mass extinction and other smaller extinction events are related to rapid climate change events. And I think one of the best examples is the end Permian extinction that happened 252 million years ago. Um, What they think happened is the volcanoes in Siberia released large amounts of carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, which destabilized uh, the climate, warmed the atmosphere. And as the oceans warmed, they released methane, frozen methane from the bottom, which further destabilized the climate. And altogether, uh, the temperatures on Earth increased by about 8 degrees Celsius. We lost more than 90% of marine species and 70% of terrestrial species. So there's a huge die-off 
caused essentially, we think, by climate change. So it's a scary analogy to think about, but it's the same road that we've started to head down today, this time because of our own fossil fuel pollution. Mm-hmm. There are so many things uh, that we depend on from biodiversity, so many services we get from biodiversity, whether that be filtration of our water, um, whether that be medicine, um, so many ecosystem services that we depend on, not to mention that these species have existed for millions of years, and we have no right in my mind to cause them to disappear forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, the Pope would agree with you. I read in his encyclical, Laudato Si, he said the exact same thing. We have no such right um, to do this. And so it's interesting. Well said. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking about a brand new film about Yosemite that is going to air Wednesday, March 29th. 8 o'clock p.m., 7 p.m. Central on PBS. Um, we have the film's creator, uh, writer, producer, director, uh, 
Joe Ponacorvo on and Joseph Stewart, who is one of the scientists who contributed to it. He's a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz, go banana slugs. And we're talking about the impact that climate change is having on Yosemite. And what we find is that the impact on that ecosystem is an impact on all of us. As I mentioned earlier, um, a huge percentage of California's water comes out of the Sierra Nevadas. And when there's not a snowpack, when the water isn't flowing, there's no water to flow, not only does that impact the 38 million residents of California, but because we grow in the Central Valley, 70% of the produce that's enjoyed by the rest of the country, um, that lack of water impacts all of us and our food supply. So, Joe, one of the things that your film does so well is it depicts the juxtaposition of a very tough, uh, resilient set of plants and animals that are in Yosemite. And it juxtaposes that toughness to their vulnerability to climate change. And I couldn't help wondering, are human beings prepared to be as tough and resilient in the face of climate change? After spending all the time that you did in Yosemite making this film, did it make you look around at the developed world and the people who live in it (laughs) um, any differently? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think every film gives you new insight into our relationship with the natural world. And, you know, we're a highly resilient and adaptive species. But in my opinion, I mean, I guess what I took away from this is, is a couple things. I think we tend to look at, we tend to think about climate change as something happening, you know, in the Arctic or somewhere distant. And I think this really brings it closer to home for a lot of people. Um, but I think the, the real question is not um, can we adapt, but quality of life. What kind of life do we want to adapt to? And we do have an opportunity here um, right now to kind of set that path for future generations. And I think it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around making changes that, are, that we ourselves, our generation, will benefit from, but that generations beyond us will. So I think that I, I, I really think it made me think a lot about our role uh, you know, today and, and what we can do to enact those changes now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, Joe, when I speak with conservationists and environmental activists around the world, every single one of them has a personal story of what inspired them to devote time to environmental protection. Um, And many times it's an experience in nature, but as we all know, more and more of our human population is centering in urban areas and getting less opportunity to get into areas like Yosemite. What role do you hope your film might play in inspiring the conservation movement going forward? Well, you know, I mean, I think, I think on the most basic level, um, people need to get out there and experience nature firsthand, and 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 when they do that, they develop they develop a re- you know the more you the, it's it's kind of like developing a relationship with a person. The more time you spend with someone, the greater empathy you have for that person. And I think the exact same thing is true about nature. And that's really why we kind of incorporated this adventure sports aspect to show the fact that people are not isolated from this ecosystem, that they're interacting with it, that they're part of it, and encouraging people to be part of that system. I think it's very hard to think about protecting the natural world if if you're in the abstract. You have to be there and experiencing it yourself. 
Well, and the rich biodiversity that your film depicts that's found in Yosemite is made possible by the fact that it's protected land. Um, you know, you're sh- you show large animals like bears and bighorn sheep and mountain lions. Um, and then we also get to see the tiniest seedlings that will become giant sequoias that could live up to 3,000 years old. And it, it's just unbelievable the breadth of biodiversity that your film depicts. Why do you think it's so important for people to see evidence of nature in harmony the way that your film depicts it? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, and you know, again, even though you can spend a lot of time out there and hiking around the Sierras, chances are pretty slim that you're going to see a bighorn sheep. Um, oh, yeah. Or, yeah, you know, or even be able to understand the life cycle, kind of visualize the life cycle of a giant sequoia. Um, and, you know, or even see inside a pika's home. So I think the reason we wanted to bring these things to people is so that they can have this intimate glimpse at the natural world that they wouldn't normally have by just hiking, even hiking the John Muir Trail. You know, it's going to be a different kind of experience, but to actually see how these creatures survive the day-to-day lives, to see the life cycle of a giant sequoia, I think these are things that resonate and make people ask more questions. Absolutely. Joseph, of course, this past winter, California got a lot of snow and rain, and I think we we know that people are going to be tempted to say, hey, we're good to go. Uh, that animal life, plant life that suffered during the multi-year drought are, are good. Everybody's fine. The drought is over. Based on your research, how might this fluctuation impact the ecosystems, and, and should we rest on the fact that we got this big snow this year? Well, the long-term trend is still for warming temperatures, and there's variation in, you know, what models predict is going to happen with precipitation in California, but the what we see from looking at the historical data is that year-to-year fluctuations in precipitation are becoming larger. We're getting more very wet years and more very dry years, and that's what almost all of the models predict is going to happen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, So there's a large number of species that are going to be affected by that. Uh, The building's ground squirrel is uh, another example of a climate change vulnerable species that lives at high elevations in Yosemite. And this is a species that has disappeared from 40% of historical sites, and climate change seems to be the cause of that decline. Now, ground squirrels are important because they bioperturb the soil, they dig tunnels, and they help water infiltrate those meadows, thus supporting the meadows as an infiltration and water holding system. Um, So decline also contributes to decline of ecosystem services. Absolutely. You know, this film is gorgeous, and it's going to be airing on March 29th. That's a Wednesday at 8 p.m., 7 Central on PBS. And I want to congratulate you on this absolutely amazing film. Please take a, a moment to check it out. Joe, in the 30 seconds we have left, tell our listeners a URL where they can go and find some other snippets, other things that you have out on the web to take a look at the the film that you shot? Uh, well, if they go to the PBS Nature uh, website, um, there you'll be able to find um, a lot of the uh, short web extras um, that we have. And so awesome. there you can dig a little bit deeper into some of the story. 
perfect. That's PBS Nature. Um, just Google it. You'll find it. Go to their website. Thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen. Thanks to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information.